Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special returning guest is Joanne DiMaggio, and today we will be talking about her brand new book, The Inner Light, How the Beatles Planted the Seed in Our Soul. From 1964 to 1972, Joanne DiMaggio was president of a Beatles fan club. Fifteen years later, she began pursuing a career a career as a past life researcher and therapist. In those ensuing years, she always wondered how she, a Catholic girl from an Italian-American family living in a blue-collar neighborhood on Chicago's South Side, would go from being a from being passionate about the Beatles to becoming passionate about reincarnation research. It was a totally illogical leap, which begged the question, did anything happen during the heyday of Beatles mania that may have planted a seed leading her to an esoteric career long after the group disbanded? In this semi-biographical book, Joanne revisits the past to answer that question as she discovers how the Beatles influenced not only her spiritual journey, but the spiritual journey of of countless other baby boomers. Joanne DiMaggio is considered a respected expert on the topic of reincarnation and soul writing. She earned her master's in transpersonal studies and her spiritual mentor certification through Atlantic University. She has had numerous articles published and given talks on the subject of past life exploration the pre-life planning session, and soul writing to global audiences. In addition, she has been a guest on nearly 100 radio programs and podcasts, including this one. For more information, you can visit her website, which is joannedimaggio.com, and that's J-O-A-N-N-E-D-I-M-A-G-G-I-O.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Joanne to the show. Good day, Joanne. Hi, Robert. I'm so glad to be here with you again. Thank you very much. Now, I went back and looked, and the last time we spoke was in April 2020, and it was about, I did to myself again, (laughs) new life online case studies. So um, that was quite a long time ago, but I loved that show. Yeah, that was was an interesting research project, and uh, I enjoyed it. bringing that uh, to the public. Yeah. Now, just for the listeners um, who may want to listen to that show, you can go to our website, byteradio.me, and click on the archives, and at the very bottom of the page, I have an alphabetical listing of all the guests. And just find Joanne's name there and click go, and you'll be able to listen to that show. Okay, so let's start with this book. (laughs) This is very different from the books that you have written in the past. 
Yeah, I mean, it has some elements of it because it is uh, a heavily researched book, but this is the first time that I've actually uh, done something that's on the lines of a, of a memoir, including, uh, you know, what kind of what was going on in my life during the eight years that I was president of the Beatles fan club and how that morphed into the career that I ended up following. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the premise of this book and, and how it differs from previous Beatles books? Well, um, I was wondering, uh, you know, I'd love to see patterns in, in my work, and I'd I love to see the way spirit moves people um, from point A to point B, sometimes without them actually knowing that's what's happening. So um, I was always wondering, because uh, the, the neighborhood that I grew up in in Chicago, um, definitely the topic of reincarnation was never brought up. I mean, we, you know, it was just... I went to 12 years of Catholic school. We never, that, oh, no, 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 you never talked about that. Um, and, you know, and so I thought, well, how in the world, you know, did I go from living in that um, very blue-collar neighborhood um, in, in the 60s, uh, become so immersed in the world of esoteric philosophies? And so I, I was looking back on it, and I thought, I wonder, did my eight years as with the Beatles fan club contribute to this insatiable thirst that I had for a deeper meaning of life. And I just wondered, you know, wow, did the Beatles subliminally plant the seed that blossomed into my profound desire to understand how the universe operated? So that's what, that was the premise. I, I was searching for that answer and um, decided that I would, you know, pull out all of my, the newsletters that I produced in those eight years, I kept them all, uh, and I started looking at them again and um, looking for clues. And then mm -hmm. on top of that, I, I had about 60 different Beatle biographies. I started searching through, um, interviewing other Beatle fans and things like that to sort of piece this together. So, you know, I divided the book into the first part is the memoir, the eight years I was with the club, and and it's different from other books because it's from the perspective of being a Beatles fan club president, not a Beatles fan. Although, obviously, I was a Beatles fan. But they are different because I had um, experiences and confrontations and kind of run-ins with people at a whole different level, um, you know, within the fan club base. So um, looking at that, what happened, how did it shape my life, how did the – time period we were in in the 60s, how did that contribute, how did my growing up in the Catholic Church contribute. So there were a lot of factors that I was pulling from to um, come to find the answer that I was looking for of how did I go from, you know, this passion about the Beatles to this passion about esoteric studies. Yeah, yeah, I, I grew up in an Italian-American Catholic setting. So, you know, the idea of reincarnation is like, what? You can what relate. are you talking about? <laughs> completely relate to that. And um, But anyway, it was, you know, it's, it's interesting that that type of upbringing um, would, you know, kind of later be challenged in a way. And, and you know, once one um, looks around and becomes familiar with different perspectives, that you know, how, how things change.
Yeah, you know, it really surprised me, Robert, was the fact that when I was doing my research that, well, George in particular felt the same way that I did because I felt very alienated uh, in that neighborhood that I grew up in. I, I, I just was like, who are you people and what am I doing here? Uh, and he, he, he kind of felt the same way. He said sometimes he felt like he was on the wrong planet. You know, and uh, he said he was fine when he was in his garden, but the moment he left the gate, he said, well, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> so it was so fascinating to me years later to find out that we were on a parallel track in terms of how we were relating to our the place that we were um, on this planet at that moment in time. Yeah, that's very interesting, you know, and um, I'm sure there are, millions of people who kind of felt the same way as far as, um, you know, kind of what am I doing here and and that uh, some of the belief structures didn't seem to resonate with with what we were feeling. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. now you you, you were a fan and and you became a um, fan club president. So tell us about, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, briefly about, you know, the kind of spats and kind of maybe territorial types of of um, conflict that, that happened. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience as being a fan club president and then even um, becoming um, a national um, president? Um, well, you know, Beatle fans uh, were starting fan clubs all over the country. Um, and I think that, like me, they had this desire to form groups of like-minded souls, which is interesting because that's exactly what I do in my esoteric work. But um, So I knew I was a good organizer, and I knew I could write fairly well. So I thought, you know, I, I had started clubs of, of various kinds when I was even younger than that. But I thought to myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what I can do um, and find some members to join this, my club. And so I, I got my friends involved. Later on, I was um, doing early marketing, if you can call it that. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the magazines back then would publish Beetle Penthouse. And so I would write letters to these people, and I'd say, hey, I'm starting this fan club. Would you like to be a member? And I started producing a newsletter. Um, my parents allowed me to use the, the basement of our house. It was a walkout basement, knotty pine walls, you know. And I plastered them with beetle posters and stuff. And I had my my mother's old Underwood manual typewriter down there. And I just pounded out a newsletter one at a time because we didn't have – you know, we didn't have word processors. We didn't have the Internet. We didn't have uh, databases and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's extremely amateurish newsletters, you know, using um, one page at a time and then using magic markers to write headlines and stuff like that. But I got my friends to write articles, um, and um, it just started to grow. And, um, you know, I, uh, I was doing things. I was trying to organize meetings. We had some meetings at some downtown Chicago hotels, which I thought was very grown-up of me to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes they were well-attended, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes we had people come to disrupt us. And um, there was, uh, after a while, 
we started to have some infighting going on. And it was interesting to me is that the fan base was, was mirroring what was going on with the Beatles themselves. So when they didn't get along and, you know, we didn't get along. Uh, when they were, you know, kind of uh, separating, we were separating. So it was, um, it was very interesting. Uh, of course, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't see it that way. But, um, yeah, so I, I formed this fan club, and it just sort of, um, you know, grew and grew and grew. And eventually, um, which I'm getting ahead of the story, but eventually the National Club in New York, the Beatles USA Limited, it was called at the time, uh, was trying to get all of the independent fan clubs across the country under their umbrella. And so we were being sort of strong-armed into becoming a chapter of the uh, official club in New York. And it was kind of like the David and Goliath story. You know, the independent club didn't want to, didn't want to give up our independence. And, uh, cause there was some money involved. We had, to, our members had to join that club. And, um, uh, I got the help of, um, a disc jockey at WCFL radio in Chicago, Jim Stagg, who wrote a column in the Chicago Sun-Times, and he became my my champion <laughs> and contacted New York. They didn't they didn't uh, interact with him at all, but the fact that he publicized this in the Sun-Times, um, I think, got the attention of the people in New York, and eventually, of course, eventually we all caved and became chapters of the National Club. And then they offered me the position of national chapter director in which all the clubs across the country um, were reporting to me. So it was um, <laughs> it was very much uh, uh, an interesting rise from, you know, having this little club in my Underwood typewriter in my basement to, you know, within a few years having all these fan clubs across the country um, uh, reporting to me, so it was uh, it was really quite a ride. <laughs> I bet it sounds sounds like it, and, and you know, and it's um, one of those uh, David and Goliath kinds of um, situations where you know, where the big one kind of you know forces itself in a way, but but it was good that you were able to. Um, to, like you said, ride it, you know, ride it to the to the very top. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you said that in the book that you didn't necessarily want to meet the Beatles, <laughs> but were more comfortable for behind the scenes. So, why didn't you want to meet them? <laughs> you know, um, that's that's. I know that's a really strange thing for me to say. I was really basically fairly insecure, and. Mm. Uh, easily intimidated. John Lennon intimidated the heck out of me. And I thought to myself, if I meet them and they don't like me or they say something uh, negative about the club or or something like that, I will be so devastated that I just won't be able to go on. And so to avoid that, I just stayed in the background. Um, I did not send my newsletters to them. I didn't um, – uh, you know, um, put myself on the forefront. Other than this thing with Jim Stagg in the Sun-Times, which I, I knew they wouldn't see that. But um, anyway, I didn't – I had a lot of people in my fan club, fans, who, you know, they saved their money. They went to London. They would stand in front of the Beatles' homes. They would stand in front of Apple Records and wait for them. And I, and I even had uh, a friend who – 
went to Scotland up to uh, found Paul's farm up there and went up there. And I just thought that was just so awful. I, I mean, to me, it was like <laughs> that was an invasion of their privacy. How could you do that? You know, and yeah. so it sort of came back to haunt me when I went to Bangladesh concert in New York. And I I ended up being the one standing in front of the hotel uh, waiting for George and Ringo to come out. <laughs> yeah. I never met no. No. no, no. Well, yeah, I can understand that. Gosh, back in the 90s, um, I met Diana Ross, and who was one of my, you know, I just love her music. And I was mm-hmm. a total idiot <laughs> in front of her. And, uh, <laughs> like, well, you know, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, so, but, but I know, you know, how that can be, um, you know, meeting someone that, that you admire. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a lot at stake, so I didn't want to take a chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand that. So now, looking at the book, you mentioned it was, you know, divided into three sections, and you indicated the first part um, was from the year 1964 to 72, um, mm-hmm. about, um, you know, your kind of being um, the Beatles fan president. Um, and then also the second one is how fans were impacted by spiritual seeds, and and the last Mm -hmm. one discussing the various metaphysical aspects. So tell us exactly, you know, kind of, you know, why you broke it down into that that particular format. Sure. Um, Well, I had had newsletters that I had done from 1964 to the very last one that I did in early 1972. That's when the... Beatles fan clubs were disbanded, all of them, both here and in uh, in the UK. That what happened was George Harrison's fan club, um, which was one of the best fan clubs in the country, by the way. Um, his fan club uh, put out a newsletter. George saw it, did not like something that was in it, and. That was the end of that. He he just put a stop to, which was ironic because his fan club did a lot of good. They they uh, they had a, a fund for Bangladesh. They had um, adopted some uh, a child in Thailand, I believe it was. They had uh, a cancer fund in honor of George's um, mother or sister. I forgot which it was, but anyway. Um, uh, and, and the president of that fan club was close to the Harrison family. So we were all mm-hmm. absolutely in shock when it was George, of all people, who put it into the club. So so I followed along with that, you know, what happened, especially at the Bangladesh concert, because things started to unravel then. Uh, I indicated the, the problems between the national club and the independent clubs and some of the the things that were going on behind the scenes uh, that were really uh, uh, sort of devastating to, to the fan club presidents. So the club ended in 1972. Um, and then I sort of went to sleep, you know, and like my whole world just shut down. I, I We moved out of that neighborhood in Chicago out to the suburbs. And then in 1987, here comes Shirley McLean with Out on the uh, the, mm-hmm. min, the mini series. So that was my big wake up call. That was the big, you know, all the sleeping metaphysicians sort of got, you know, hey, you remember this? Because I had been, prior to the Beatles, when I was an adolescent, uh, I was reading books about reincarnation. I, the first book I read was on um, 
The Search for Bridie Murphy by Maury uh, Bernstein, I think his name was. It was published in 1956, and it was about a woman who's, who believed she was um, uh, in 19th century Ireland. And that fascinated me. And I started reading about Edgar Casey then, and I was reading books by Jess Stern and Luce Montgomery. But then the Beatles came along, so I put that on the back shelf, uh, uh, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. here comes Shirley MacLaine, and I'm like, oh, I came full circle and back into the metaphysical part. So then the question became, am I the only one? Am I the only Beatles fan who was um, impacted? Because when I look back, you know, everything that happened with the Beatles going to India to to study with the Maharishi, the way the music changed, the more research I did, um, I was absolutely astonished at the number of quotes that I found, mostly from George, but there were quite a few from John, a very few from Paul or and hardly any from Ringo that indicated that they were, you know, sort of um, going along the same path that I was going and, and that their belief system was totally in, in alignment with mine. So I wanted to interview Beatle, other Beatle fans to say, hey, did you were a Beatle fan like me. Did, did they impact you spiritually the way they did me? Did you follow a spiritual path because of them? So I found... Um, I had 10 different uh, people that I interviewed who were around my age, uh, so we were part of the original group of fans. And, um, you know, so there's a whole chapter in there about how they felt about how the Beatles impacted them. And then, like I said, at the end, then the last chapter is all about the actual um, uh, quotes from the Beatles on various aspects of metaphysical studies that dovetailed into what I was doing. I also have a chapter in there on soul writing um, and how John and Paul used um, a version of soul writing in writing some of their music. Because I do, um, that was the subject of my master's thesis, uh, and uh, I do teach soul writing now, um, which is basically for your listeners, it's a written form of meditation. Um, so it's writing in an altered state of consciousness. So you're getting information from a divine source that's coming through you and then out onto the paper. And, um, you know, in doing my research, I found that John and Paul both used um, aspects of that process in writing. So it's a, it just sort of came full circle for me. And um, and I ha- then I got my answer as to whether they did influence <laughs> me or not. The answer was, yes, they did. <laughs> and many others, for sure. Now, the, your soul writing, the book on soul writing was, I believe, the first interview that we had. Mm-hmm. So you can you – how is soul writing different from automatic writing, or is it different? Oh, it is. Oh, absolutely. Um so there's there's a lot of uh, differences between the two. Um, soul writing, you you do say a prayer of protection. You surround yourself with white light. Um, with automatic writing, a lot of times you don't you don't you skip that whole step. There's no meditation, no prayer of protection. That's being said. Soul writing comes from within it comes from you know a divine source coming through you and out on the paper automatic writing there's a a whole um study uh about the dangers of automatic writing and the ARE and Edgar Casey especially was adamant about not using it because they were concerned about possession 
And there's some case mm. studies in, in a book that Edgar Sung wrote uh, called Venture Inward that um, of people that got into trouble using automatic writing. So um, I have a whole list of the differences between the two types of writing uh, in my book. And, um, but, you know, um, one is safe to me, the other one isn't, basically. Uh, so I, I teach people the difference between them and how to enter into a safe um, conversation with spirit, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, so it's um, it's been a very um, profound uh, tool of transformation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's good to know. I mean, because, um, you know, with automatic writing, you, you really don't know who, who is kind of, guiding the pen, and that can, you know, invite some kinds of malicious um, actor, so to speak, into the process. Yeah, exactly. And um, what I loved about the the research I did, like, for instance, John Lennon, when he wrote Across the Universe, he said the lyrics came to him while he was in bed, and he, he knew the words were purely inspirational and that they were being given to him. And so he said he was acting as a medium between himself and the source of the inspiration. So, um, you know, that's, that to me is a really good definition of, of soul writing. And the same thing happened when he wrote Nowhere Man. He said that it came from his subconscious while he was in a quasi-mediumistic way. He was resting and the words of the music just came to him and he said seemingly out of nowhere. And that, that's the way uh, that this happens. He said he was aware that he was receiving a vision and he felt compelled to write it all down. And then Paul said basically the same thing when he wrote yesterday. He said it kind of wrote itself. He said, I just dreamed it. It was a gift, you know. And with Let It Be, the same thing. He said it felt like a visitation. So um, so all those uh, phrases that they used to try to describe that inspirational process is exactly what soul writing is. And very famous authors and composers um, in trying to describe where does your inspiration come from, It's that's the process that um, Edgar Casey taught. He called it inspirational writing back in the 30s and 40s when he was talking about it. And um, so I renamed it soul writing, and um, I think it's just uh, – and it's something anybody can do. Yeah, so it's very fascinating. Exactly. So we're about halfway through the show, joining. So I want to take just a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about you know how you felt when you pulled out those old newsletters and and kind of what emotions you were experiencing. Okay. Okay. Sure. Everyone, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and hope you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder, we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, www.byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to the more than 1,700 shows we have aired during the past 13 years. Also on the site, are links to the products and services we provide, books, 
photography products and services, calendars and greeting cards. There is also a link to our account at Fine Art America where you can purchase items such as mugs, prints, pillows, and more. Our show is available as a free podcast on multiple platforms such as iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and Audible, with icons to each platform on our homepage. We are also available on social media platforms such as Facebook, X, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Threads. Our website, www.byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Joanne DiMaggio, and we're talking about her brand new book, The Inner Light, How the Beatles Planted the Spiritual Seed in Our Souls. Again, you can find out more about all that Joanne has to offer by visiting her website, which is joannedimaggio.com, and that's J-O-A-N-N-E-D-I-M-A-G-G-I-O.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Joanne. Hi there. <laughs> Great. So tell us, you know, what what it was like when you went and pulled all those. First of all, it, it's just, you know, notable <laughs> that you kept those newsletters. Um, but tell us about, you know, kind of what, what were some of the emotions that you experienced as you were going through those? Well, it's, a, you know, I guess the word cringe would be the best <laughs> adjective to use. Uh, um, you know, I had to do a lot of forgiveness work on myself. You know, I thought, Joanne, you're just a kid, just a kid. Don't be so hard on yourself. Um, it was very amateurish, obviously, uh, from even the way that it looked. Um, you know, I was a fairly good typist, but, you know, I didn't go back. And, I mean, you're using whiteouts and you're, you know, you're um, – then, then I'm using uh, blue carbon paper uh, then we got a little bit of money, and I went and bought a mimeograph machine. You know, I had to type the stencil and put the black ink on the on the drum and then, you know, run it off, and some of it was lighter in some places where you could hardly read it. <laughs> and, uh, but the content of it was what was cringeworthy because we were extremely judgmental, um, especially about the Beatles' wives and girlfriends. I mean, oh, my Lord, that – that created such a chasm between us. Um, you know, you know, some people, especially when John got involved with Yoko, oh Lord, that just, everything blew up. You had the, a whole faction of people that were sending hate mail, uh, to me, uh, well, uh, about Yoko, um, some people, and, and then the same thing happened with Paul with, with, when he, when he ended his relationship with Jane Asher and, began his relationship with Linda Eastman. Um, so that was going on. When John made his comment about Jesus in 1966 about, you know, well, it was perceived that he said we're more popular than Jesus. Um, and he did say that. He did say that. But that's not what he meant. 
And that created an uproar, obviously. There were Burning Beatles albums, and the music was being mm-hmm. banned. Lost, we lost a lot of, uh, a lot of members because of that. And, um, you know, people weren't bothering to step back and, and reread what he said and to understand, um, that what he meant, what he said was, we, we meant more to kids than Jesus did, and he was just simply stating a fact. He wasn't, saying, you know, um, that he agreed with that or anything. So so that was kind of going on in, in um, 1965-66. Uh, and then when they got into taking uh, LSD, we lost a ton of, of members then too because they said, well, I just I can't go along with this. I can't be a part of a group that that is doing, is taking drugs like this. And so, uh, so I had, you know, all this this mail that I was getting, because we didn't have email back then, so it was actually coming in mail oh. <laughs> mail to me, and um, and all these letters from all these members, and, you know, why aren't you saying something? And if I said something, then I got attacked for that. If I didn't say something, I got attacked for that. So all that was kind of going on. And then, of course, when they started to get involved with the Maharishi, when they uh, went to India, um, uh, our, the fans were going, what are they doing now? And, you know, why, <laughs> why are they doing this? And I, 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 and then we lost people. <laughs> so it was, um, it was really interesting. And then, you know, I noticed too that we were starting to age out, even though, um, mm-hmm. you know, 1963, 64, um, those of us who were 13, 14 years old, you know, four years later, we're 18, 19, we're going into college, and you've got the younger group coming up. You know, so all of a sudden they're 12-year-olds, and uh, we couldn't relate to them. So um, so we were dealing with that as well. You know, it's like the older fans didn't want anything to do with the younger fans. I mean, just across the board, there was just a lot of um, infighting going on and, and it wasn't a real happy time. I don't know, to be honest with you, Robert, how I stuck it out that long, because it was uh, it was emotionally extremely painful at times, uh, and then at other times it was it was a joy because I, I yeah buried myself in the fan club. I and I you know I developed a lot of skills that I used later on in life. You know, so like my three by five cards became my database, you know, and learning how to market and sell, um, sell photographs. Um, so there was a commercial end of it, um, you know, and then conflict resolution. I'll tell you, I learned at the school of hard knocks about that. So yeah, so it, going back and reliving all of that was, um, uh, like I said, it was cringeworthy, <laughs> and I thought, oh, my. but but my search was for, you know, what's the pattern here? What's the repeating message? And when it boiled down to it, it was all about family. It was about, mm-hmm. you know, we were a family for, of, for the Beatles, of the Beatles, um, and a lot of that, I think, was mirroring what was going on in my own family life. Um, uh, and, uh, and so I just found the whole thing really quite fascinating, the fact that a lot of those patterns that were started when I was volunteering, um, as for the fan club, um, continued in my adult life when I was volunteering, you know, for other organizations, for my church or my, or the ARE, those, 
those same identical patterns were there, um, the conflict resolution issues and, um, you know, sort of feeling like, um, you know, you're doing a lot of work and you're wondering why, uh, you know, looking for the the bright side of it. It's like, um, you know, is this, is this still bringing me joy, you know, to do this? So it was, uh, as you evolve, you don't, you don't see it at that moment, but when you look back, there it is. Yeah, it, it is very interesting, I think, when people um, look back in hindsight on upbringing, uh, various, you know, actions and, and behaviors and just how much they really are seeds, you know, planted for, mm-hmm. you know, one journey later in life. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so now uh, about the research, you mentioned, you know, that of course you pulled out these newsletters and, and used that information, and you mentioned some, you know, biographies. Was, you know, was were those the two primary sources for your research? Uh, yeah, the newsletters were, and then um, the biographies that I acquired over the years. I have like about sixty different um biographies some some came right at the time of publication uh there were some books written about the fan club uh that mentioned in in uh two of them and so i wanted mm-hmm. to get those books to see what they were saying about the the, the north american fan clubs um so uh yeah so i was you know, going into the index and seeing, you know, did they say anything about reincarnation? Did they say anything about God? Did they say anything about death? Um, you know, and then, um, you know, Robert Rosen's book about John Lennon was, was really very helpful. So was Eric Meyer's book on the spiritual dimension of the Beatles. Um, some of them, um, especially Eric's book, really dovetailed into, um, into my own work. So it was, uh, um, it took me, quite a while, I would say two years at least, to pull all those quotes out and then put them in some semblance of order, um, you know, into talking about the different aspects of spirituality. Um, you know, for instance, like, you know, when uh, looking at their lyrics or their music, you know, songs that referenced reincarnation, you know, like I want to tell you, Reese, is I could wait forever, I've got time, maybe next time around, you know. So the, the going through all the lyrics of all the songs and saying, oh, my God, it was right in front of me the whole time and I didn't even see it, you know. <laughs> so um, and the references to God, which I thought were important, especially in light of John's comment about being more popular than Jesus, I didn't want people to think that they were atheists by any means, you know. But the one who really, really inspired me, of course, was George, because he had the most um, to say. He took it very seriously. He took his studies very seriously. You know, and he talked about predestination and karma and meditation and, you know, the soul contract. Uh, so there's quite a bit of very rich material in, in many of these biographies that I read. Yeah. So, so you would say that George, his um, view was probably the most influential to your journey. Oh yeah. You know, he talked a lot about um, 
about karma and about self-responsibility. Um, and, you know, having grown up Catholic, and he did too, by the way, um, mm. one of the things that, that really set me on my journey into the studies of reincarnation was the fact that um, I just could not wrap my little girl mind around um, being told that, um, you know, um, you only get this one chance if you if you screw up. Like, I have this in my book about when I was around seven, um, I, I was, I used to walk to school, uh, and so we, they'd let us go home for lunch. And I remember thinking one time, oh, my goodness, if my mother forgets that it's Friday and she gives me a ham sandwich and then I go to school and I get hit in the crosswalk by a car and I die, I'm going to go straight to hell. And it always bothered me. I thought to myself, what what kind of a loving creator would do that to a little kid? You know, so the whole the whole concept of sin, you know, we had to, they marched us over to the confessional, they gave us a little pamphlet that had every conceivable sin you could commit and we had to pick out the ones that we committed. I mean, how many times can you say you disobeyed your parents or, you know, you lied or whatever? And um and, and so just in the, and then I thought, yeah, you go in, you, you tell the priest this and he tells you to go say ten our fathers and ten Hail Marys and suddenly you're squeaky clean again. And I thought, this doesn't make any sense to me. So when, like I said, when I was around 10, 11 years old and I'm reading these books about reincarnation and about the whole concept of karma, suddenly it all made sense. It explained everything about how the way the universe operates that I, that I took in as being a truth and, um, and that set me on, on the path. So I do all of those 12 years of Catholic schooling to my career as much as I owe the Beatles. It's just funny when you look back on it. It wasn't funny at the time, but, you know, you look back on it and you go, oh, yeah, that's the turning point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, while I was growing up, I was an altar boy, so I had that additional, you know, kind of burden, so to speak. Not now that I look at it, but, I mean, it it, it was crazy because, no matter what you did, there would always be kind of like a sin attached to it. So, I mean, it's just like living life was sinful in a way. So that, to me, you know, that's, um, you know, putting it on kids as far as um, a belief structure is, to me, I believe, is so damaging, you know, because it, yeah. you know, yeah. generates fear versus love. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, we really were not taught how to be spiritual beings. You know, we weren't taught we were spiritual beings in a human body, you know, having human experience. And the whole idea of, uh, you know, if you, miss the, if you uh, inadvertently commit a sin and then, you know, um, you don't get to confession, that's the end of you. Um, and, you know, I, I just didn't make any sense to me, so I was thrilled when the whole idea of um, reincarnation and karma and, soul contracts explaining how we ended up with the people who were in our lives, and, uh, which the Beatles talked about um, definitely. Uh, I think George said at one point, you know, we were made John, Paul, George, and Ringo because of what we did last time. He said it was all there for us out of place, so we're reaping what we sowed in our last lifetime, whatever that was. So he saw it that way as well, that, that there was this was not a chance coming together 
of them. And even Paul said he, he said he often stopped and wondered about the chances of the Beatles getting together, you know. And he said it's a mystery to him how it all happened. So, um, you know, I think that that yeah. makes perfect sense to me, yeah. Yeah, it does. Now, through all of your research, was there anything that surprised you? Um, you know, about uh, the Beatles and spiritual journey. Yeah, I didn't realize that um, John um, and Yoko were as involved with metaphysical studies as, as they were. I mean, uh, I didn't know that there was a, um, I think it wasn't an astrologer. They had a full-time psychic and tarot card reader on uh, on the payroll, his name is Charlie Swan, and that they used numerology in their everyday life. Um, there was this re- importance of the number nine in their lives. They collected Egyptian artifacts, um, and that John thought they were the reincarnation of Victorian poets Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which I thought was interesting. Oh. And that John was really interested in, in Kundalini energy. Um they were all interested in in astrology. Um, Robert Rosen said that they ran their lives by the zodiac and the Mercury retrograde charts. Uh, mm-hmm. So I thought that was that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they wouldn't go, you know, to a party if the numbers weren't right. Um, they picked their um, apartment at the Dakota because of the address. It was seventy. 72nd Street, apartment 72, so 72 is a 9. So they, so I, I, mm-hmm. I had no idea any of that uh, kind of was going on uh, sort of behind the scenes. But then George, you know, he sang about being a Pisces fish and Paul about being a <laughs> Gemini, you know. So it, um, it was all there. And some of the quotes uh, about them, um, the whole idea of planting a seed. Um, Eric Myers wrote that um, spiritual awakening has been compared to a seed that blossoms into a flower. And, Mm. you know, they certainly planted that seed. And then uh, Mary um, Silva wrote about George that he said, from what I saw of him, he was just trying to put the information out there and hoping it would take roots. He was just planting seeds. And he was hoping one day the clues would blossom into something, and they sure did, as far as my life was concerned, and I'm sure the life of many other um, Beatle fans. And people that weren't even Beatle fans, too, may have been influenced. Who knows? Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting. I did not know (laughs) most of that um, about, about them. And, you know, it seems that... Um, like, you know, for you, um, and then obviously for many, that, you know, the idea of planting the seed um, was on a, really on a subconscious level. I mean, it was, it mm-hmm. seems that, you know, they were able to put to, words to music, um, you know, so people would, you know, enjoy and, you know, even learn the lyrics to a song but that the concepts behind them, those seeds, were maybe at an unconscious level. 
Right. I think that's one of the beauties of living in the 60s, to be honest with you. I and mean, we did have a lot going on. You know, the Beatles came out just a few months after John Kennedy was assassinated. So it was, we were pretty susceptible. We were ready. You know, we, we had gone through a lot of grief. But I think something peculiar was going on in the 60s, not only sociologically, but politically and, and of, of course, uh, technically, but in the spiritual dimension. We all felt something was, quote, going on, unquote. So it was, we were primed for it. You know, we were ready for it. We were looking for something. And that was one of the reasons why when I did my research project with the um, the Beatles fans that I interviewed, I was asking them, you know, how it affected them. And they were not necessarily all Catholic. I mean, there were quite a few who were raised in other religious beliefs, and they they were all saying the same thing. We were looking for something else. We were looking for, like, why... Why are we here? What What is it, you know? What's kind of going on here? We wanted more um, information. So I think we were just primed for it. It was the time that we were in. Um, when you think about everything going on in the 60s, what an incredible time to be alive. So it was just a confluence of a lot of different things that came up that created this very lush field in which these seeds would blossom. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So now it's been 60 years, I can't believe. So yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and, and they, you know, obviously continue to attract listeners, young, you know, as well as some mm-hmm. of us who were there at the time. So what would you, first of all, how would you explain their popularity still? And, and um, any advice for the, the younger listeners or fans um, when when listening to the music. Well, you know, I I often think about because I, I you know my children um, are my son actually got involved interested in the Beatles because he worked on the Beatles rock band game. He worked for uh, Harmonix when they were putting that together. So we had kind of that in common to talk about. Um, and my grandchildren, you know, it's like. They like to listen to Yellow Submarine. They think that's a, a funny song. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like the, the the kids don't have what we had. They don't have – nobody's come along since the Beatles that have even scratched the surface. The, the, the beauty of the music, the lyrics, the harmonies, all of that um, has not been duplicated. And – you know, I'm doing a program for my homeowners association this week. Um, no, not next week. And um, I'm, I'm going to have to water it down because I live in a very conservative neighborhood. So I'm not going into the spirituality <laughs> part of it. But it's that generation, you know, that that, um, that uh, can can really appreciate the words. I don't I don't hear any music nowadays that has the depth and the profound nature that goes inside of you to answer questions about you as an individual soul, you know, having a human experience. And I think that the Beatles did that. And um, they gave us permission to question everything that we were being taught. So, you know, for me it was, 
yeah, maybe not so much about this idea about sin or, or whatever. Um, you know, whether it was a pushing us in a political uh, position or just a sociological change, I think that we were um, we were uh, ready for all of that. And I think that that our younger kids are, are they may not even know it, but they're but they're hungry for something like that. They're hungry for all, all human beings are hungry for a sense of meaning and purpose. And I think that listening to the music will take you to a whole different level uh, of understanding the way the world operates, the way the universe operates. So it, for that reason, it's a, it's a universal. It's a universal concept, and nothing is, like I said, in, in my opinion, nothing has come along mm-hmm. since then that would do that would accomplish the same thing. Yeah. First of all, she can even understand <laughs> Some of what you're seeing is, is uh, yeah. you know, a challenge for yeah. me, a challenge. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I agree that, you know, the just the um, basic nature of the, of the message. And, you know, when you mentioned earlier in the show about some of those songs that were um, inspirationally um, inspired, uh, those are some of the most popular songs ever. And, you know, mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, the idea of touching, coming from within, from source or from the soul, um, is um, a message that transcends time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, George's album, All Things Must Pass, uh, you know, I think it was a musical masterpiece, but it also was imbued with important spiritual messages. So, you know, all all of that was being um shared with us and uh and I, and we, we ran with it. It's like, well what do you do with it when you get it, right? But see the sixties to me were so powerful in that we had not just the Beatles, but you know, you had groups like the Moody Blues or you had Paul Simon and uh others that were really doing a lot of introspective types of lyrics, which you don't hear today. So for that reason, I think that this music is just, um, it, it'll, it will never, ever get old. Yeah, I agree. Well, Joanne, thank you for your time today. This has really been a treat. I've learned so much about the Beatles that I didn't know I knew. Um, well, so it was I love talking about them, Robert, so thanks for the invitation. I appreciated it. You're very welcome, uh, and you have a good day. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Great. Again, everyone, today's guest has been Joanne DiMaggio. We've been talking about her brand new book, The Inner Light, How the Beatles Planted the Seed in Our Souls. And again, you can find out more about Joanne by visiting her website, which is www.joannedimaggio.com. That's J-O-A-N-N-E-D-I-N-A-G-G-I-O.com. And her book is available now on Amazon and wherever you get your books. So, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Her Show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to BikeRadio.me's Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. To become a show follower, visit www.blogtalkradio.com. 
forward slash bite radio me and click on the follow link. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Bite Radio Me. Be sure to visit our website at www.biteradio.me. That's B-I-T-E-R-A-D-I-O dot M-E. And until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.